Hey everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. We talk with industry executives, industry personalities, students, all different kinds of people. Um, I'm Tom Richardson, here along as usual with my co-host, Joe Favorito. Tom, how are you? And I, I, two points we want to make. Yes. One is, we are in the office of Vince Gennaro for unprecedented, <laughs> unprecedentedly, probably the fourth time, which is right. the most we've probably done in one place in two years. And the other thing is, I want to throw out a little bit of trivia as we get into mm-hmm. this podcast. We have had four people connected with the Olympic program in the year on our podcast. The interesting thing about all four is that they have all been women. Yes. So, so wait, let's do it this way, Joe. Yeah. I know we're improvising right yeah. now. If anybody out there listening happens to know, first person who tweets yeah. at us, right. at Joe Fab or at Convergence TR, who the four women can be were. a guest on the show. Right, exactly. can actually, how about this? Can host the show. You can host the show. So, have so, your own guest. So there were four women who have been on, and we'll mention them at the end of the podcast. Yeah. So, so that, actually, that's a good way to play it. Yeah. So you got to listen to the whole thing to, right. to know the answer and then so, get your free show. Anyway, All right. Here we go. So uh, Who's our fourth, Tom? Well, say hello. We're Tom. really happy to have... Um, Someone who uh, is a young professional in the business, but also another student in the program who's doing a great job here at Columbia, but also doing some really cool stuff and interesting stuff in the business. And her name is Liz Souter. And Liz, our first Canadian, I think, too. uh, Maybe our first Canadian. So let me just give a brief bio of Liz, and she can talk about her background in a second. First of all, welcome. Thank you. It was really great to have you. Um, Liz is the director of National Team Athlete Services and the manager of the para team for U.S. Rowing. That's correct. One of the great associations in the Olympic movement in the U.S. Um, So we're going to talk to Liz a little bit about her journey to her position in this business and her journey to Columbia uh, and then do a little bit of a deep dive on what's going on with the U.S. Rowing right now and some of the issues and challenges that associations are facing, particularly in the way they manage their teams. Uh, and some of this stuff happening in Paralympics, which is something mm-hmm. we haven't gotten into yet. And we'll talk a little bit about some of Liz's perspective on the business as we get deeper into the chat. And, and some of the other things which we talked about earlier, there is no real difference between crew and rowing, correct? Uh, that's correct. Just uh, just where you're from, really. <laughs> and, and we have no idea why it's U.S. rowing and not USA rowing. I don't have any idea. Um, maybe it was some kind of sneaky marketing tool, but I'm sure someone at U.S. Rowing knows the answer. They, I, I bet know. it goes back to the dawn of the digital age when the URL wasn't available. For maybe something. they tried like to that. make it a hashtag. <laughs> right. Maybe. And yeah. you just can't have spaces well, it in the hashtag. usually goes back to the domain question because a lot of the leagues had issues. Uh, the most notable was MLS. They didn't mm-hmm. have MLS for many years. Remember that was yeah. mlssoccer.net or something like that? Because it was MLS, the real estate company. Yeah, exactly, the multiple, multiple listing, listing service. service. Yeah. <laughs> so we're dating and ourselves and actually, knowledge. It's funny, when MLS started, people thought the MLS Cup was like something that you want in real estate. Right. So. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway. um, Liz, let's, um, let's start at the beginning and just spend a few minutes on your background. Uh, tell us about um, your journey from, from Canada to New York and um, how it all played out. Sure. Um, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. Uh, like you both said, I am Canadian, so I was born in Toronto, Ontario, and uh, went to an all-girls private school in downtown Toronto. Really fortunate to have been able to go to such a great school. The name of the school was? The name of the school was Branksome Hall. Um, it's an IB program, and uh, it has a fantastic rowing team. Um, we rowed on Lake Ontario in downtown Toronto. 
And my brother actually was the, the first suitor in the family who started rowing at his high school and um, were both very tall. And so right off the bat, he, he excelled at the sport and, and really grew to love it. And my whole family got behind him. And so when I came of age to join the rowing team at, at my high school, it really wasn't a question. Um, there was no, you know, oh, is this something that interests you? This was a given. I was going to row. Um, this was something that my parents had sort of decided. So I got into it, but I, I didn't really start to develop a passion for it until my, my second year of rowing. Um, and that's wholly you know, that's all, all the credit is given to my coach and three girls that I rode with and competed with that year. Um, it was such a fantastic year. It was such an amazing experience. And um, my, my teammates and the bond that we shared, that's really what, what developed my passion for rowing. So as I progressed throughout high school, I got faster and faster on the ERG, which is the indoor rowing machine, if you don't know. And um, your ERG score is one of the, the biggest recruiting tools that colleges oh, will use to um, determine your potential, determine your strength, and determine your speed. It's like the SAT for yeah. rowing. <laughs> it is like the SAT for rowing. That's exactly right. So, um, again, my brother was the trailblazer in the family, and he was recruited to row at Harvard um, a year before me. And I think just by virtue of knowing the family name and, and knowing that he was a really reliable, really great athlete and great student, uh, the coaches at Radcliffe Crew, which is the women's rowing team at Harvard, uh, were interested in bringing me on as an athlete as well. So um, I graduated from high school in 2008 and uh, started at Harvard in 2009. And I rowed for Radcliffe all four years. Um, had an incredible experience. There are some fantastic women that I got to know just through the rowing team. Uh, the coaches there are some mentors and, and leaders that I will look back on for the rest of my life and keep in touch with for the rest of my life. And um, yeah, I mean, it was really probably the best part of my collegiate experience was being able to row for Radcliffe. So how successful was the rowing team while you were there? And then we have to ask the Winklevi question is, did you have a run-in with the Winklevoss twins when you were at Harvard? At yeah, well, I think the so, mis there's always been a, a yeah. mystique for those of us who are not rowers. There's right. been a mystique around Harvard rowing and right. rowing on the Charles River and then mm -hmm. going to England. And, and then the social network, the movie, yeah. kind of enhanced <laughs> that, I think, mystique because we had a, that was a, kind of a big theme in the movie. Yeah, was, no, totally. Yeah. Um, so to answer your second question first, I did not overlap with the Winklevoss twins, unfortunately. Um, I have been able to meet them, but that was after I graduated uh, from Harvard. So uh, no, unfortunately, I didn't cross paths with them. Um, in terms of success, uh, we had our ups and downs throughout my collegiate career, um, but we ended on a high note, which was really a great way to, to finish out college. Um, I think we were seated fourth or fifth at the Ivy League championship, and we won. Wow. which was like the most exhilarating thing to to have you know two perfect races your heat and your final and and come out on top was incredible and as a result of winning we were able to go to the Henley Royal Regatta my senior year of college That's what I was thinking of. which is Royal. yeah which yeah. is that sort of iconic race that you see in the social network um it's a really unique experience it's a really unique regatta it's uh it's a single elimination, uh, two lanes only, and um, the lanes, instead of being like a buoyed lane line, it's wooden booms, so you really can't deviate from your course at all. Um, you have some famous rowers and famous umpires following you down the course. The shores are lined with British people and, you know, fascinators and big fancy hats and 
blazers and long dresses, drinking pims and cheering for you. So it's it's really so it's real. There is it's, a, there, oh this no, is it is yeah. <laughs> Wonderland is real, um, and it's it's a totally incredible experience. I encourage anyone to uh, check it out at some point in their life. It's definitely a bucket list event. Did it ever make it onto the media? I just thought that I've never seen it. On. It's like a wide world of sports thing. It used to be dating ourselves. Right, but I wonder if they're streaming it now. If they not, they are streaming it live. Yeah. Um, so I think you'd probably have to go out and find it. Right. But um, they well, the way the deals with Twitter and Facebook are going these days, I'm sure we'll yeah. be reading a press release. There you go. Yeah, it's, you, it's pretty soon, right? It's you in, never go. Yeah, it's in the summer. I think end yeah. of June yeah, is okay. usually when it is, June or July. Um, but they've done some really cool uh, video streaming with drones, and, and so that's right. you know kept the the community outside of England engaged. And it's just outside of London. Yeah, Henley on Thames yeah, okay. is the town, and the whole town really shuts down for that right. regatta. Um, most people, there aren't a ton of hotels in the area, so most people will be taken in by a family. That's funny. Um, it's kind of like the Masters for golf at Augusta. <laughs> yeah, I guess Seriously, so. no. yeah. Yeah. So when I was there, our entire um, eight, which is actually a nine-person boat because you have a coxswain mm-hmm. leading the charge, um, our entire eight was taken in by one family, and uh, we all we house. all we all slept in on mattresses, sort of all over the floor, and and it was a really great experience. But um, that's you know how I rang out my college career, and as soon as I got back from Henley, um, I started my job at U.S. Rowing a couple of days later. So wow. packed up all my things from Boston, moved to Princeton. I didn't know anyone in New Jersey, um, but I, I found some roommates on Craigslist, which safety disclosure, maybe don't do that. But you know, when you're, when you're 21 and you're desperate, That's what you, you, do. Do. Yeah. you have to kind of, kind of take some risks. So, um, found a place to live and, and started my, my new life in Princeton. How did you get the job? Great question. Um, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do, even as I neared the end and of college. And also, before I forget, what did you major in this uh, one? Even better question. I was a social anthropology major. Wow. So very... The natural transition to sports. <laughs> and, and, and naturally, now I work is, in Olympic actually. rowing. Yeah. Um, no, it is interesting because anthropology gives you a really interesting cultural lens to look through when you're working in sports and when you're working in anything, really. Um, I think it's always kind of given me a unique perspective, um, probably much to the chagrin of the people that I work with. I'm a bit of the devil's advocate and always playing the culture card and how will this affect the way people see us type thing. But uh, yeah, it was it was a major that I chose because the classes were really interesting. And I sort of knew that, you know, what you studied when you were an undergrad really wasn't paramount to what you did in your career. Um, it was it was more something for an experience experience in your undergrad so oh no it's okay we can keep talking <laughs> should we, i wait for the ambulance to go by we cued the sound effect from the race so. <laughs> just thank to you. remind everybody thank you guys yeah. um so yeah so i had no idea what i wanted to do as i neared the end of my college career but i knew that i wanted to work in management or planning um, i had some minor work experience planning events and managing people managing mm-hmm. large groups of people and I also had some leadership roles on my team doing a lot of logistic things. And uh, just by virtue of talking to friends and friends' parents and TAs and professors, um, I put my feelers out there. And I was really shocked at how many people came back to me weeks and even months later and said, oh, I have this job that I think you'd be perfect for. And that's exactly what happened. Um, a teammate's mom 
she is the uh, chief marketing officer at U.S. Rowing, and she. What is her name? Her name's Beth Cole, and she's still there today. And shout um, out for Beth. Shout out for Beth Cole and her daughter Celia, who are. Who the works in NBC Sports? Yes, she does. Yeah. yeah, there you go. It's a small world. Um, but I had the privilege of rowing with Celia for uh, for three years at uh, Harvard, and uh, Beth reached out to me and said, "There's a job opening at U.S. Rowing, and you're the first person I thought of." And I looked at the job opening, and I, I didn't really know anything about U.S. rowing. I'm Canadian, so it's not really an NGB that I paid attention to. Um, but I looked into it. I interviewed for the job. And it wasn't until I interviewed and, and spoke with the people that I work with now that I got a sense of, okay, this, this might be a good fit. And so um, from that, I got the job and started right after we returned from Henley. So is the job you have now the one that you got when you started? It's in the same department. I yeah. started off as a national team coordinator. And um, like you said, I'm now the director of national team athlete services. Right. So um, what does that mean? Let's, let's <laughs> talk about that. So um, what does it mean? So national teams, our, our department at U.S. Rowing, it's very small. Um, I think right now we have seven employees in the department that's including uh, a dietitian, an identification person, another coordinator, our, our team manager, our operations manager, and our high performance director to name a few. So it's a pretty tightly run operation and we oversee anyone that rows for the United States. That goes from a junior athlete under 19, under 23, Olympic and Paralympic. So all of those athletes are within my purview and all of those athletes are people that I assist them from when they sort of make their first step, dip their toe in the water of, okay, this is something I'm interested in. I want to try out what are their first steps all the way up to handing them their gear package once they've made the team right. and sending them off to the Olympics. So the, team, the entry to the team is determined by trials and things like that? Like how are they, how are they brought in? That's a great question. So um, there's two main pathways to make a national team in general. The first is a trial. And um, if you are making the team through a trial, it means that you're probably rowing a smaller boat. So a single person boat, a double boat, or a pair, which is also a two person boat, but less oars. Um, so s small boats are typically selected through trials. And it's pretty straightforward. If you're American and you enter trials and you win in that boat class, you are named to the team. You have the opportunity to go um, to the world championships or to the Olympics. In bigger boats, uh, you know, it's always a matter of combinations. You mm -hmm. want to make sure that you're, you're picking the right combination of athletes. So a trial doesn't necessarily make sense in that you might have two eights, for example, racing in a trial, but four in boat A and four in boat B might actually make the fastest combination. It's like an all-star team. Exactly. So, so for um, for big boats, we select those crews through selection camp, and so we we do run some regattas where athletes can qualify to be invited to a selection camp. We also have a full-time training center based in Princeton, where men and women train all year round uh, with our national team head coaches, and then. Those athletes, as well as the ones that qualify, are invited to selection camp, and from there, um, an eight, a four, a quad, wow. whatever the selection camp boats are that year, are determined from that pool of athletes. So, Liz, what are the what are the variables in rowing that make the difference at the elite level? Oh gosh. Um, so, strength, stamina, experience. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, the their variables are are so varied. There's yeah. 
everyone's strong at that level. Right. Um, you know, everyone has great stamina. Everyone has great erg scores. Some certainly better than others. Um, especially in big boats, a lot of it is about being able to row well with one another. Um, a lot of it is about experience as well. Uh, the Olympics is a high-pressure scenario. Right. And I'm not sure if you guys knew this, but our, our women's eight has been undefeated internationally for 11 years. They've wow. won three consecutive gold medals. That's amazing. So can you imagine the target on your back as a, a female athlete? And the, the most amazing thing about that... To make women's uh, national team in soccer. Yeah. It, kind of women, yeah. yeah, it's and I mean it's like a it's an unspoken dynasty. Not yeah. a lot of people know about. The, and has there been a cons- the consistent uh, group of, of eight for well, those many of those years? That's what I was going to say. Is that's the most incredible thing? No lineup has been the same two times. Wow! Wow! And no woman has been in every boat hmm. for eleven okay. years. So it's it's a a rotation of women, and that really speaks to the depth of the athletes that that we have in the United States. Um, NCAA women's rowing has exploded since Title IX, and it's been a great resource for uh, women's national team rowing. And then our national team coach has provided, you know, a really great structure and a great system to take those athletes and make them even faster when they graduate. For the main, for the main eight in, in a, um, a person boat, is, is it all eight, are all eight of the same body type Something I always wonder about with rowing. Yeah, that's like a great question. You have to question. be a certain... Like, if you're just too short... You have to fit in the boat, is what you're saying. <laughs> well, no, but I'm, I'm wondering if, like, if you if you lined up all eight women next to each other, like, oh, yeah, they're all basically Same within with a men, certain too. range. Well, yeah, I mean, it applies to men, too, but I never really thought about it uh, in terms of the ability to fit into that eight-person chemistry. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there certainly is an ideal body type for a rower. You know, when we're when we're looking to identify athletes, we usually give a height range, a weight range, and an ERC score range. Right. But we've had short females. We've had incredibly tall females. I think we've had females as short as um, 5'9 or 5'10", which might not be short for the most of the world, but it's pretty short for an Olympic rower. Is it really? Wow. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know what our tallest female athlete has been, but we definitely have some some women that are six two, six three, um, mm. and I, I should bring you a photo because you'll you will see that we've had some some shorter females, and then of course the coxswain is only about a hundred pounds or so, right. so they're so, really short. <laughs> so without using more water analogies, what is kind of the pool of athletes for an, for an average Olympic year? So going into Rio, how many athletes a year out? had an opportunity to actually qualify? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so we have uh, 48 spots for athletes on the Olympic team. And um, in any given year, we might have 200 athletes who are, are training full-time with the hopes to make that team. Depending on your gender and depending on your weight class as well as the boat class that you train in, the number of opportunities for you to make make the team are limited. So if you're training full time in the women's single, um, you can you can certainly decide midway through the year that you want to try out for another boat, but it's like anything. You really want to specialize your craft. And so a women's single scholar is going to train in her single and she's going to train all year. And um, if she doesn't win trials in that boat, then that's it. She's she's not going and she's not she's not going to go to another boat that's that's pretty much the end all be all. So you really you really do have to pick pick your battle and go for it. Um, so for some for some 
there's one opportunity, there's one chance. And, um, it's, you know, it's do or die for a lot of these athletes. And then for some boat classes as well, for, um, lightweight women, for example, on the Olympic team, there are only two spots for lightweight women on the entire Olympic team, on the entire U S Olympic team. And so that, you know, that's a, that's a huge jump. If you're a lightweight, a female lightweight athlete, then it's, it's a huge risk to devote that much of your life to try and make one of two spots. Yeah. So were, were you part of the contingent that went to Rio? Yes, I went okay. both so talk the about Olympics. That. Let and it, tell, tell us about that experience because it seems really fascinating. And that can also transition into the Paralympics, which is something yes. I wanted to touch on as well. Absolutely. So um, the Olympics uh, was an incredible experience. I, I was really lucky to be able to go as one of the team managers. Um, in terms of... Uh, our delegation size. So the U.S. Olympic Committee gets a really limited number of accreditations that they can distribute to every sport. Obviously, every athlete gets an accreditation, but then they might say, okay, you have 45 athletes. Here are three accreditations for coaches, or here are five accreditations for coaches. Mm -hmm. Whereas normally we travel with like 30 coaches or 25 coaches. So um, we had one team manager in the village with the athletes. We had a couple of coaches in the village with the athletes, and we had um, a physical therapist and a doctor in the village with the athletes. And the rest of the managerial staff, including myself, unfortunately had to stay in downtown Ipanema, which was horrible. As you, it, it was actually really cool. Um, so we we went down to Rio. We stayed in a hotel in Ipanema, and uh, we would we would go up to the rowing venue every day make sure the athletes got there okay we couldn't actually go inside the venue uh, because we didn't have that accreditation and so we would camp out at a nearby soccer club that the u.s olympic committee basically converted into a high performance center hmm. and so they they rented out the soccer club the flamingo club if anyone's a soccer fan and uh built weightlifting platforms brought in ergs brought in spin bikes. Um, we had additional physical therapists and trainers there. They created a lounge for us. They had created a cafeteria for us. So the USOC did an incredible job of, of sort of building this home away from home. Um, because again, the, the village was about 90 minutes away from the rowing venue. And so the schedule was that the athletes would wake up very early in the morning, get on a bus, drive down to the course, walk across the street and get something to eat at the Flamingo Club, and then walk back across the street, train for a couple of hours, come back to the Flamingo Club, maybe do a little bit of physical therapy, recover for a little bit, and then either erg or go back on the water, and then eat and take the bus back to uh, the village. So wow. yeah, it was one long trip in the morning. What was your main function during the time there? So my main function in Rio, um, especially for the Olympics, was uh, helping friends and family get around. So I assisted them with ticketing. Um, I assisted them with logistics. If there were any sort of issues that come up, um, lost passports, things like that, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's always helpful for them to have a resource on the inside who may have more connections than they do. Um, and then additionally, I mean, while I'm traveling with the team, I still have my my other job going on at home, which is, you know, I'm planning to go to the Paralympics and, um, we have fans at home that want to know what's going on and, and stakeholders back at home that want to know what's going on. So just a, a lot of the work for these kinds of trips, it's actually done before the trip. Mm -hmm. And then the first couple of days, 
once you're there, you're really there to put put out fires and help as needed and, and just be there in case something comes up. So it was, it was, you know, actually a really nice experience. So any memorable or amusing stories that you can share from, from your time there? No, yeah. Ryan, no Ryan Lochte story. <laughs> yeah. I actually sat next to his coach on the plane ride home and he was, he, he had some interesting stories yeah. for sure. Right. Um, definitely memorable stories. Um, we, we won two medals in Rio, uh, at the Olympic games and, um, Watching the women's eight win was incredible. I've you know I've seen them do it multiple times. Right. Like I said, they're 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 pretty stellar and they've been undefeated for the past eleven years. But um, watching them win at the Olympics, you know you you can feel the kind of pressure that they're feeling. You're in the audience with their parents, yeah. with their husbands, with their boyfriends, girlfriends, and and you can really feel the tension. You can slice it with a knife. Um, their families have put their lives on the line for these athletes. They've put in financial support, you know, emotional support for four years or even eight years or longer for these athletes to cross the line and, and come in first. I mean, really, that's right. what they're looking to do. Uh, they started the race and they were not in first. They were down. Um, and there is sort of one one call that Caitlin... Snyder, who's now, she's now married, Kaylin Gregian made uh, partway through the race. And she just said to the crew, we are the U.S. women's eight. And immediately the whole boat just surged ahead because they could all feel the weight of that legacy on their shoulders. And they all felt that, you know, they knew that with the strength that they had in that boat and the history that they had behind them, no one was going to touch them in that moment. So they crossed the line first and it was like, you know, goosebumps just, and the whole crowd was, was just going crazy to see that. So that was so, pretty so incredible. brings me back to the question I asked before, like those variables that make the difference of a couple of seconds or actually fractions of a second. Is it, how much of it's psychological? A lot of it. Oh, yeah. totally. I mean, a lot of it because rowing is, it's one movement yeah, that you do over and over and yeah. over again. Right. And you just have to get really good at that one movement. Right. And there are a lot of people in the world who are very strong and very good at that one movement. So to get into a rhythm and to put yourself in that much pain and then know that you might have to push a little bit harder or go a little bit faster, um, you know, that's, that's totally psychological. And well, so what's the, the exact nature of the collaboration that's required to have maximum chemistry? Oh gosh. You know, like, like <laughs> I, I know it's, a, it's kind of a hackneyed phrase, but like being on the same wavelength in the way you approach We're, the race. rowing in the same direction? Is yeah. that well, you going back? There's that. Uh, but no, but seriously, like how, how do you get in sync on, on the chemistry side? Like when you say there's, you're looking to match the, 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 the four people from boat A and the four people from Fair B because that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the more effective eightsome. Absolutely. Um, you're, a lot of it, especially in an eight, has to do with a coxswain. So a coxswain is somebody who steers the boat and also has a headset on um, with microphone or with speakers throughout the boat. Oh, and they can they can make no calls. No more megaphones yelling. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, no more megaphones. Um, so they have a headset on with, with speakers throughout the boat, and they basically call the plan, call the race plan um, throughout the entire race. So they play a really important role. What's an role. example of something they would say? <laughs> um, Move your head. <laughs> yeah, row harder. No, absolutely not. They would never say row harder. I mean, and this is someone whose job it is to push you when you're in the most painful state you can be in 
and to get you to push yourself even harder without you right. hating them in yeah. that moment. So it's, it's a really unique um, role, and, and we do have some great coxswains. I mean, I'm, I'm not a coxswain, but they often speak in rhythm speak, which right. is in sync with the strokes of the boat. Okay. So... Um, so they'll they'll try to sort of match up to the to the beat or the rhythm that the rowers are are pulling. Right. And um, they'll they'll a lot of counting, a lot of okay. In two strokes, we're gonna do a push with the legs. That's one, two on this one. And a lot of it has to do with emphasis, with tone of voice. Interesting. So it, it is really interesting. Yeah. I I would encourage. And there's you. no coaching from the sideline, so to speak, or the no. riverside. Yeah, no coaching from the side, and yeah. you really can't hear when you're, you yeah. know, when you're on the water, and especially when you're in that much pain, you kind of black out. <laughs> so you you really can't hear what's going on. You wouldn't be able to hear a coach yeah. on the sideline. But yeah. I, I would encourage you to to go on YouTube and, and look up a coxswain race plan because yeah. it's really interesting to hear. Right, a coxswain makes a great dancer. I would imagine. Yeah. So, <laughs> so. yeah. So let's move on. Two things we definitely want to touch on. One is touch on the Paralympics and the amazing stories that you found there. And then, obviously, how you got to Morningside Heights, sitting here uh, on the <laughs> yeah. fifth floor of Lewis and Hall. Sure. Um, so the Paralympics, uh, the para rowing team is wrapped up under national team programs at U.S. Rowing. Uh, some NGBs have a separate NGB that oversees para. Um, we don't. We, we encompass them in everything we do. Um, our world championships offer both able-bodied and para events, and so our, our teams are one and the same. Um, so we have three classifications in para rowing. Uh, they just changed the labels of them, but uh, in layman's terms, they are arms and shoulders, which is an athlete um, who either has like a really high double amputation or a high spinal cord injury, and they're strapped into a boat and they can really only row with their arms and their shoulders. Wow. And then the next classification is trunk and arms. So it's an athlete who can lean forward in the boat and use their arms to row. So they can lean forward and back and uh, row with their arms. And that would be for someone with maybe a lower double amputation, uh, cerebral palsy, mm-hmm. fused ankles, something like right. that. And then our, our last classification is legs, trunk, and arms. And that's someone who's able to functionally row the full rowing stroke but maybe they're visually impaired. Maybe they have amputations okay. um, in their fingers, something like that. So um, we have uh, we won one silver medal at the Paralympic Games. Um, there are only four boats, so that's pretty good. That's twenty five percent. We won one silver medal in our our legs, trunk, and arms four, which was very exciting. Um, and then we also had one athlete come in fourth. Um, it was probably the best race of his career. And then we had uh, two newer rowers uh, or two newer rowing boats that um, also did incredibly well at the Paralympics. Um, the vibe of the para group is is very different than the Olympic group. Para rowing is pretty new. It's only been in the Olympic program or in the Paralympic program since 2008, I believe. So a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes are still learning about the sport, still learning about the equipment and how to how to rig it properly. Um, and the other interesting thing too about para athletes is that, you know, every disability is completely different, mm-hmm. and so because of that, um, you know, you've heard the term adaptive sports. It really is called adaptive sports because every athlete needs to adapt to the sport in a different way. There is no one size fits all seat that you can put para athletes in. You know, there's there's no one size fits all anything. Mm-hmm. So. 
it's really a collaborative effort for each athlete to try and figure out what is the best, you know, what's the best piece of equipment, what's the best way for this athlete to row to make them the fastest that they can be. Um, but the Paralympics was an incredible experience. Uh, never have I seen, um, you know, 10 athletes in a wheelchair holding onto each other like a train to get around more easily with, wow. you know, one motorized wheelchair at the front. I, it's incredible the the number of disabilities that you see at the Paralympics and how they're all able to come together and excel in their sport. Um, and it's really, I think, often perceived to be like the little brother of the Olympics. It's not. I mean, these athletes are, are totally intense. They train full time just like their Olympic counterparts do. And it's, it's just a different competition. It's mm -hmm. a different sport, mm -hmm. um, but it's equally incredible. That's amazing. Good mm -hmm. for you for working on that. That's a great, uh, it's really nice that it's grown so big and successfully mm -hmm. over the last, especially it seems like the last decade or so. Sure. It's become a much bigger thing. Yeah. Which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about um, you coming to Columbia. Sure. So uh, tell us about how that came about. <laughs> so I was actually, um, I was actually looking to come to the program in 2012. Um, and that was more for, uh, in a very sneaky way, I was uh, trying to use this program to help me get a work visa. Um, like I said, I studied anthropology in college, and you can't get uh, a work visa the type that I have. You can't get a work visa unless you're able to prove that you have the education to work in your field. Mm -hmm. And so I'd been working at U.S. Rowing for a couple of months. Uh, when you're an international student, you have a little bit of time after you graduate to work before you need to get a work visa. And so I, I was working at U.S. Rank for a couple of months trying to get my visa, and um, my attorney advised me that I would need to get some kind of education to uh, basically support my application and say that I was the most qualified person to have my job at U.S. Rowing. Um, unfortunately, uh, the program at the time was only a part-time program, Correct. and it didn't part-time programs don't give you the opportunity to have a student visa when you're enrolled in them. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to complete it in time to finish my, uh, or to get my application right. in. So I ended up doing another degree uh, online. I have a certificate in sports management from Columbia Southern University. Okay. It's, our, it's our sister school Ivy South. League of the South. So it's a new podcast um, opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, a, that's just an online school. I, I managed to bust out a, a quick certificate in sports management in a couple and of months. And that was good enough, a certificate? It's apparently so. Okay. Um, yeah, let's I not mean, ask any questions. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's not question it. But um, from that, I was able to get a work visa, and I've been at U.S. Rowing since 2012. Um and, uh, you know, the, the idea of coming to Columbia and, and work in this program has always stuck with me since then. Um, my predecessor at U.S. Rowing actually was also enrolled in this program and graduated. Who's that? Uh, her name's Margot Laurie. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so it was something that I knew about and I'd sort of always kept my eyes on. And then when it got to a point in my career at U.S. Rowing where I felt like, okay, I have my my, you know, my feet planted firmly underneath me. I know what I'm doing. I have room for a little bit of something else. Mm -hmm. uh, going back to school was just seemed like a really natural thing for me. So, um, so yeah, so I started in the program two years ago and, uh, because of the rate that I'm taking it at, I, I can't do summer classes and I can only take a few classes a semester. I won't graduate uh, until next spring. 
Um, but it's, it's been an incredible experience. Uh, have you had any brushes with the Columbia rowing program since you've been here? <laughs> um, I have not. Uh, no, I haven't. I haven't oh. been able to go. I do know a few of their alumni and their coaches and former coaches, but no, I haven't gone out to a practice or anything and like that. And have never rowed on the Harlem River? I have not. Wow. No. Is that where they row? Yes. The Harlem River? Yep. Yeah. It's yeah. quite an experience from mm-hmm. what I hear. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, you don't want to be there in floater season. It's <laughs> another story. So, anyway. Um, so, just any thoughts on the experience so far academically or in terms of the, you know, the enhancement of your professional knowledge that sure. after a couple of years here? Sure. I mean, I think that my, um, my, job at U.S. Rang has given me the opportunity to wear a ton of hats and uh, I've been able to try a lot of different things but it hasn't given me the opportunity to look at the business side of rowing and um, especially in media and marketing that's just not something that I work very closely in uh, closely with at U.S. Rowing and so um, being able to take classes in those things and just understand a more holistic picture of what the sports industry is like I think it has translated into my work at U.S. Rowing in that the decisions that I make and the choices that I make and the approaches that I take to things, I'm able to kind of understand different perspectives and and what will help be helpful to our different departments at U.S. Mm -hmm. Rowing to just have a more successful outcome in the end. I know that's a really sort of wishy-washy, convoluted Mm -hmm. answer. That's right. It's a good answer, though. But even um, in things like, for example, our apparel sponsorship, I don't sign the contract. I don't go out and try and negotiate the terms of the deal, but I am the one ordering the apparel and distributing it to the athletes and dealing with those issues. And so just being able to frame my communication with the athletes um, in a way that's more marketing minded and, uh, you know, to make sure that that partnership is really authentic and, and successful, that's something that's come from this program. And so I think it has made me better at my job. Um, and it's, you know, it's opened my eyes to, to beyond team logistics and, and beyond operations. All right. Well, we want to wrap up. Yeah. I just have one, one more quick question. Yeah. If you were a brand looking to engage in the Olympic space, how would someone sell U.S. rowing? What, what would be the, the reasons why a brand, a non-traditional brand, would want to engage with rowers? Well, um, that's a really good question. I, you know, I'm sure our marketing department talks about right. this all the time. Putting her on the spot <laughs> for the elevator pitch for a sponsor. But, but you live there, so I mean, you know, you yeah. live and breathe it. You know more than anybody. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there are, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's a really high focus and a really high concentration on a small number of Olympic athletes and a small number of Olympic sports. But then there is a demand for some of those smaller brands to engage with Olympic athletes that have a high level of success, but might not be quite as widely recognized. Mm -hmm. And I think rowing fits that bill. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, we have an incredible amount of success, especially on the women's side and it's consistent success. So you can, you can count on that success year to year. Um, and, and I, I think, think the, the demographics must come into play too. Absolutely. And we have an incredibly yeah. young membership at yeah. U.S. Rowing. Um, our ju- junior rowing across the country is exploding. And so it's a really great way to engage with high schoolers, um, mm-hmm. high school rowers, junior rowers. So, I mean, that would, that would be for me, I would go after those brands, you know, maybe not the, the huge um, monopolies Right. of the world, but mm-hmm. I would go after sort of mid-level brands that are looking to engage with a more niche audience. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. So um, we'd like to ask everybody we have on the show uh, about how they keep up with uh, all the breaking news and information and 
all the issues facing this business. So you have to do that in, on two levels. You've got to do it for your job in U.S. rowing, and you've got to do it for your work at Columbia as a student. How, do, how are you staying on top of everything? Well, that's a great question, and I know that you want me to say Twitter, but I'm not going <laughs> to well, say Twitter. Well, at least it's part of your answer. <laughs> um, I, I am not a huge Twitter user. The right um, answer is say I follow at Joe Fav. I only follow at Joe Fav and at Convergence TR. There you go. That's all she needed. All right, End of question. Get, we there move you on. Go. All right, so it was good having you there. Thanks. Um, no, no. Seriously, like, I'm, I'm, this is, a, to me, a, an interesting question. I love, we love hearing the answers because there's so many different ways of that dealing the with answer. the information. <laughs> so. um, I think, especially when I started, uh, I, when I enrolled at Columbia, I was very acutely aware that I only knew rowing and I wasn't familiar with a lot of the, mm. the rest of what the sports industry had to offer. So I su- subscribed to SBJ. I, I added my email to a ton of different listservs mm-hmm. and, um, you know, emails that come in every day. And that's actually been a really big way that I, I get sure. a lot of my mm-hmm. information. Me too. Yeah. Um, on top of that, I, you know, you read Twitter, I look at Instagram. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just much more mm-hmm. of a visual person mm-hmm. and, and people do share news on Instagram. Right. Um, I still use Facebook, um, in terms of rowing specific. Uh, I, I actually try to stay out of the, like, the drama of the rowing world, and I really try to stay focused on, on what's going on with my athletes. So if there's an issue within the team, they will usually tell me about it. Um, but beyond that, there there are rowing websites and, and rowing blogs that you can follow. I'm not a huge follower, but I think just because it kind of distracts me. And before we go, we have to answer the trivia question, Tom. Yes. So the, the four Olympians, or the few, four Let's people, ask Maurice. Associate Maurice, do you know the answers? Um, we the, gave you the answers before yeah. if you were paying attention. The, the four, <laughs> the four um, females, all women, Female who've been Olympians. associated with the Olympic programs who've been on our podcast are Neha Agarwal, Isis a graduate Tillis, of the program. graduate of the program, Isis Tillis, a graduate, I graduate, she's a graduate of the program, or hopefully soon to be a graduate of the right. program. Uh, and then the third one is Kira Barry, who was the women's wrestling team leader for Rio and is also a Columbia graduate. Right. And last but not least, Liz Suter. Thank you, Liz. This Thank was you, terrific. Liz. Just to remind everybody uh, to, to wrap up that final uh, trivia point, uh, Liz Suter from U.S. Rowing, where she's National Team Athlete Services Director and the manager of the Para team. That was uh, a great chat. Thanks for sharing yeah, thanks all for your, your story <laughs> and all your insights about what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Well, thanks, everybody, for another good episode of The Cusp Show. Thank you, Joe. It's good to be working with you on, uh, on another episode. Um, thank you, Maurice, as always. You did a great job Maurice just nodded behind so the scenes, behind, so. behind the curtain. Um, we'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and my host is Joe Fabrito. My production assistant this week is Columbia student Maurice Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash The Cusp Show. And you can get in touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, the Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.